Okay, we're taking this time to talk about Christmas carols, and uh, you want to think about those. I've been thinking about Christmas carols for years, <laughs> over 30 years. I've been a, directing the choir here for, what, 33 years, but before that I directed another choir for quite a few years, too. So I've been in that business for a long time, and uh, been thinking about Christmas carols. Like I said, it starts in August for me, and uh, we listen to them and learn, and we know a lot of Christmas songs. But um, there's basically three types of carols. There's what I would call historical. There's a historical type carol that basically uh, tells the story of what happened. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plain, and the mountains in reply echo back their joyous strain. Not meant to teach you a lesson, just to tell the story. And they're historical in nature, and uh, that's some of them. Uh, some of them are what I would call legends. And surrounding Christmas, there are legends, there are stories that have been made up over time. And those stories uh, kind of get mixed in a little bit. We, you hear, remember the song, We Three Kings, right? And you understand, that's a lot of legend in that song. Because the Bible doesn't say that there were three kings. All right? The Bible doesn't say, the Bible doesn't even say they were kings. The Bible says they were magi, which were our advisors. And so somebody wrote that song and said, well, kings works better, so we'll use kings as, as a message. And kings was the, the word. And then we accept that uh, kind of as truth, but actually it's legend. All right. And then, uh, then there's what I would call uh, poetry. There are some songs that are just beautifully written poetry. They may be a little legend, a little not. Uh, and so uh, the, those are different things that we look at. Away in a manger, historical. The baby in a manger, no crib for a bed, and so on. Other songs try to teach lessons. And I'm going to look at two of them today. Uh, one is not in your hymn book because it's a legend. And I like it because uh, it teaches a lesson, and it's very sneaky. <laughs> I like it that way. Uh, right at the last verse, it goes, oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. And I like that. That's my style. Uh, Bur it's called the Burgundian Carol. You all know that by heart, right? Never heard of it. Say, so what are you talking about? Well, there's an old Christmas carol called the Burgundian Carol. comes from over France area, and... Uh, I'll read you the words, and we'll stop and make a comment. And this is what legends are made of. That is, people made up stories about Christmas. And uh, this is one of the great legends of Christmas. But this, this has got a little uh, a zinger in it. <laughs> the winter season of the year, when to this world our Lord was born... The ox and donkeys, so they say, did keep his holy presence warm. Now, anybody who's been in a barn knows that you don't need to heat a barn, right? You don't heat the barn. Cows heat the barn. <laughs> There's no heat in a barn because they, they make their own heat. And so uh, here he's going on a story. He says, well, when Jesus was born in the winter, the ox and donkeys kept him warm. That's entirely possible. 
There's nothing unreasonable about that. In my Uncle Ed's barn, it was always warm as can be, no matter how cold it was outside. Had the cows heating the place up. So then he says, how many oxen and donkeys now, if they were there when first he came, how many oxen and donkeys you know at such a time would do the same? So they're assigning to these two oxen and donkeys uh, the idea that they wanted to keep Jesus warm. Well, you know, that's where we cross the line into a legend. Right? And the legend is that uh, during that birth in that manger, the animals got a little extra something. And there is a legend that says they could all talk. All right? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that's a legend. It's a story. But it gives an idea. But it mentions in here two particular ones, and that's the ox and the donkey. And, uh, and so they say, well, the, the ox and donkeys kept him warm. Right? Why do they mention that? Because oxen are dumb. You heard the phrase, he's a dumb ox. Right? You heard that, dumb ox. Nothing dumber than an oxen. And a donkey is stubborn. Donkey is stubborn. So he says, these animals on the night that Jesus was born, they weren't stubborn and dumb. They were trying to help the baby Jesus. And so that's the idea of it. <coughs> and now we go on. And, and, and on that night it has been told These humble beasts so rough and rude throughout the night of holy birth drank no water, ate no food. Now, if you know animals, that's really not unreasonable. Uh, Say, well, that's kind of saying, no, it's kind of normal. We used to feed the cows at 5 o'clock and they'd lay down and Next time they're eating, it's 5 in the morning, and you're there feeding them again. And so during the night, when Jesus was born, says they ate no water, drank no food. Well, they mean that to be a legend, or that the animals were being respectful at the birth of Christ. All right? How many oxen and donkeys now, dressed in ermine, silk, and such, or fancy pants... Donkeys. How many oxen and donkeys you know at such a time would do as much? Would they respect the birth of Christ? And would they do that? And that's what the legend was, all right? And here's the last verse. Here's where they're going to get you. Ready? Ready? As soon as to these humble beasts appeared our Lord so mild and sweet... With joy they knelt before his grace and gently kissed his tiny feet. Now, you know, there's the legend. The donkey and the oxen bowed down and they licked, kissed his feet. Right? Now, you say, well, that's kind of crazy. Well, we had a cow called Grandma Cow. And when you melt Grandma Cow, Grandma Cow turned around and licked the top of your head, you know. 
and some of the guys weren't too fond of that. I wasn't particularly fond of it myself, but you know, if you're going to melt grandma cows, you're going to lick the top of your head. All right. So here's here's the, how many oxen and donkeys you know, in spite of all the things we've heard. Would you be like oxen and donkeys? Hear the truth. Believe his word. That's a thing. Gotcha. The point is that here's this oxen, the dumb ox, and a stubborn donkey. What are they doing? They're trying to help this baby. So they're going to give him their warmth. They're not going to eat food through the night to respect him, make sure he comes into the world. And then when they get the chance, they're going to kneel down and lick his feet. And he said, huh, you know any donkeys? The question is, do you know any people like that who are too dumb and too stubborn to believe that story? That's what the song is saying. How many oxen and donkeys, you know? Uh, how about you? He says, in spite of all what you've heard, do you believe, hear the truth and believe the word? And of course, there's plenty of people who don't believe in the virgin birth, don't believe in anything like that. And what do we call them? Dumb ox. <laughs> Stubborn old donkeys. People who are too stubborn to believe the beautiful story. And the legend is that the animals knew and they believed it. And so th that's a, a legend with a little zinger in it. Uh, you're not dumb like an ox, are you? you don't, that you don't believe that Jesus was the Savior? Are you stubborn so you won't believe? And that's where that one goes. All right, let's look at another one. In your hymn books, uh, this one's in the hymn book because it's not... A legend, although I call it poetry, and we're looking for uh, what, what are we looking for here? We're looking for in the bleak midwinter, page 376. 376 in the bleak midwinter. Now, this is a song where poetry becomes pretty powerful. <coughs> and um, some people criticize a song like this and say, well, it's not factual. Ah, shut up is what I say. <laughs> Don't give me it's not factual. First of all, you weren't there, okay? I'm going to agree with you in somewhat, but you understand where it's coming from. They're trying to poetically say that Jesus was born in a time of year where things weren't really nice. You didn't go outside and say, oh, it's a beautiful day. Uh, my father used to go out in the morning, look up around, and he'd say, this is a day of ecstasy when life was meant to be. He used to say that quite often. All right? And uh, some days aren't, are they? <laughs> some days you wouldn't go outside and say, this is a day of ecstasy. The other day the wind was howling here and it was kind of nasty. And I wouldn't go out and say, this is a day of ecstasy. Well, you know, some days aren't. And so in the places like England and the United States uh, where these uh, 
people were writing Christmas carols, they think of wintertime, what do they think of? Cold, miserable weather, right? And so they're trying to get across the idea. Verse 1, in the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. You know that feeling? You know that cold wind that chills you? Earth stood hard as iron because it's frozen solid. Water like a stone. If you got water out, it turns hard as can be. And here's the one for western New York. Snow had fallen. Snow on snow, snow on snow. You know that, don't you? It snows, and then it snows on top of the snow, and it snows on top of that, and on top of that. And so they're trying to get a picture that on the day that Christ was born, it was a bleak day. It wasn't a warm and beautiful day. It was a bleak day, and uh, snow was on the ground, and, and it was cold and frozen. That's not probably historically correct. Uh, to be historically correct, it's uh, in Israel, they have snow, all right, but not snow like we're talking about here. Right? So that's probably not, but the point is, it wasn't a happy, beautiful, sunshiny day. It was kind of a bleak, dark day that Christ was born. Right? Now let's go to verse 2. Our God. Heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. This is the brilliance of this poet, because they have put into here some very biblical ideas. First Kings, in your Bible, First Kings, chapter number 8. First Kings, chapter number 8. And there's a quote, almost exact quote, that comes from this uh, in the psalm. 1 Kings chapter number 8, we're looking at verse number 27. This is when Solomon built the first temple, the big, gorgeous, beautiful building covered with gold and everything else. Fabulous building, and he's going to dedicate it to God. And he gets thinking, he says, you know what? It's kind of small. <laughs> How's God going to live in here? And here's what he says in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? God going to come down in this building? Behold, the heaven of heavens, heaven and a heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. And so the songwriter says, heaven can't hold it. God's too big for heaven, you understand <laughs> That God's uh, expanse fills heaven, fills earth, fills every other dimension. And then we don't know beyond that how far it goes because it's limitless. And so he said, here's God, and the heavens aren't big enough. And the heaven of the heavens aren't big enough either. The whole God, and you think he's going to come down here to earth. Well, you got to be kidding. Let's look at Revelations 20. Now, almost the last chapter in the Bible. Revelations 20. And the songwriter says, Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. And the last chapter, almost the last, Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, that's God's throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. 
And so the writer of Revelation says, when Jesus comes down, earth is terrified, heavens are terrified, and they run away. And that's literally just about what happens because the earth is going to be burned off. You're going to get rid of all human civilization, burn it off, and then create it all new into another new world. And this time John said it won't have a sea in it. And then he said he's going to take heaven and he's built this grand city up there. And heaven is going to come down to earth and they're going to be one, heaven and earth all one place. And so the heaven that we knew up there and the earth down here flee away when Jesus steps on the world. I'm going to get rid of that. We're going to start over. And so that's a pretty powerful God if he can push heaven right right off the mat and earth. And he said, our God, heaven can't hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. But in the bleak midwinter, On that bleak, gloomy day, a stable place sufficed. Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. And that's the wonder of Christmas, and I can't figure it out today. We sing songs like he came out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. He came out of the golden streets of heaven and the beautiful things that are there. And he came down and he got born in a manger. It's what we call condescension. Now there's two meanings to the word condescension. One meaning is I look down my nose at you and I say, huh, I'm better than you. That's a condescending attitude. But there's another definition of condescension. That means graciously do what is considered beneath you. That's condescension. So God, condescending, came down and said, I'm happy to come down here and leave all of that Come down here and be human. I'm willing to do it. Matter of fact, how low can you go? Does anybody here know anybody was born in a barn? No. No. You can go back old days. In America, they were born in the houses. My father was born in a house. All right, and all his family was born in a house. But nobody was born in a barn. Jesus Christ condescended, that is, this is beneath you, God. It's okay, I don't mind. I graciously come down and take this very low place. And so he's trying to say to us in the song, in that bleak winter day, boy, did God come a long way down. A long way down. And you'd think he'd have said, do I have to be born there? He's happy to be born in a manger. That's why the story is so extraordinary. All right, let's go to verse 3. Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. This is the only Christmas carol I know that used their absolute wonderful imagination to try and think of what it was like when the Bible says, and there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. All right, now what does that mean when I say a multitude of heavenly hosts? Well, 
we don't know who was up there. But the songwriter says, They can't wake Skip up. Would you pray? Okay. We're going to have a little prayer. They're not able to wake Skip up right now. So we're going to say a little prayer, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for Skip now. Lord, we trust him into your care. And we don't know what it should be. So we believe in you and ask for your help to be with him and to help him through this time, Lord. And with Sue, as they go, Lord, bless them. Trust, trusting on you, and we believe that you'll do what's best. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. Now, there's a multitude of heavenly hosts. So a host is a whole army. So if there's multitudes of hosts, that means there's a lot, there's a lot of angels up there. And what do they look like? Got any idea? Any idea what they look like? Well, it says angels and archangels may have gathered there. We know like there's an archangel named Michael. The Bible tells us about Michael. He's a warrior angel. And we have Gabriel who's also an archangel. We've seen him active in the Christmas story. He's a messenger. He brings truth down and tells it to people. He's been doing it for thousands of years. All right, He's the one that talked to Daniel in the Old Testament. And Gabriel came down and walked in Mary's house and said, Hi. Now, I don't think he's got wings. He doesn't need them. He can move anywhere he wants. He doesn't need wings. But he walked in Mary's house and this is a 17, 18 year old girl and he comes in and he's going to talk to her and she doesn't go because yeah. he looks like everybody else. And some of the angels apparently look I would say sort of like us. They have a form like ours. Right, if you looked at old uh, Gabriel or Michael you'd say He's buff. <laughs> He'd say, my goodness, look at that face. I think he's 20. He's more like 10,000 years old. He doesn't get old. Okay. And so he's full of vitality and health. And he doesn't, you know, we, we can see, I can look around and see you're not all full of that. Okay. <laughs> some of you still got some. Hey, more power to you. But uh, some of us are losing a little vitality. But that angel doesn't. So, he, he, but he looks normal. So maybe you look in the sky and he's look like humans up there. What else could they be? It says cherubim and seraphim throng in the air. So look at Isaiah chapter 6. Let's see who these could have been. These angels that are floating up there. We get seraphim first. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. And so Isaiah, I see these things, they're seraphim, angels. Each one has six wings. And with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And so a seraphim has six wings. 
Don't ask me where they're positioned. I've never seen one. All right, but it says he counted them. Isaiah says he's got six of them. He's flying with two of them, probably somewhere on his shoulders, and he's got a couple to cover his face, and then he's got a couple to cover his feet. And what he does is seraphim hovers over the throne of God, and he's been doing it since he was created, who knows how many thousand years before. He hovers over the throne of God, flying with two wings and covering his face with respect and his feet, and he's saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And he's been worshiping God since the moment he was born. And it is naturally a reasonable idea to think that when they sang glory to God in the highest, them guys came down and said, hey, we're in on this. So there's six wing being maybe up there, as the songwriter suggests. And the other one is cherubim. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 10, over a few pages to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter number 10. Ezekiel, when he has a vision of God, he sees cherubim. Isaiah sees seraphim, six wing. Ezekiel sees cherubim. Verse 20. Ezekiel 10, verse 20. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew that they were the cherubims. Each one had four faces apiece, and every one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and their likeness of the faces was the same faces I saw by the river Kibar. Their appearances in themselves, they went everyone straight forward. So these are four-winged creatures, and four faces, and hands under their wings. So they're different. A cherubim is different from a seraphim. Uh, the most famous cherubim was Satan. Bible says, you used to be an anointed cherub that covereth. Or Satan used to worship God around the throne as a cherubim with four wings and hands like a man and four faces. And uh, of course, you know what happened to him. <laughs> but uh, so the songwriter says, can you imagine who was up there? Archangels, they look like humans, six-winged creatures flying around, four-winged creatures with hands like a man. Oh, who knows what was up there? There was a multitude of heavenly hosts up there, and the shepherds didn't say, hey, I think I see a cherubim. <laughs> and he said, oh, like you and I would do, you wouldn't know what to do. You just look up and see that. So what does he say here now? <coughs> Angels and archangels may have gathered there. Cherubim and seraphim thronged the air. Well, they're up there singing and worshiping. But his mother only in her maiden bliss worshiped the beloved with a kiss. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful poetry. He says, so here's these creatures who for thousands of years have worshipped God and hovered over the throne of God. And they're up there and they're singing glory to God in the highest. And what a sound it must have been that you'd never ever forget. It sent chills up and down your spine. Hear these angels all sing. But 
and a little young teenage girl who just had the baby, and she worshipped him with a kiss. That's why angels are kind of gathered around, because they never could get that close. The angels stayed back, covered their faces, covered their feet, hovered over the throne. Mary can pick him up and kiss him. And kiss him. Kiss him. Why? Because he got really close to humans. Closer than God had ever been to anything. Came right down, way down, born in a barn in a stable, and Mary can kiss the Son of God. He has made a close bond with humans that he never made with angels. He didn't make that bond with angels. He made a bond with humans. You can get closer than an angel. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said, you want to see my hand? You want to see my feet? And they, they grabbed him. <laughs> angels weren't allowed. Were allowed. They were allowed. Jesus said, touch me and see. Touch me and see. And so this birth of Christ is stunning that he got so close to humans that they could worship him in a brand new way that nobody had ever done before. They could kiss the baby. Beautiful, beautiful. So... It's Christmas time. Everybody asks themselves a question. What does my wife want for Christmas? I don't know. (laughs) What do my kids want? I don't know what anybody wants. People say, what do you want for Christmas? I don't don't know what I want for Christmas. (laughs) But it's a time of year when we think about give something. Let's give something. Time to give a gift. What can I give him? So what can I, Christmas time, I think, what can I give God for Christmas? Poor as I am, he says, I don't, I, I don't know, I got nothing to give, nothing he wants. You know, you say, you give God your house, what does he want with it? He don't want my house. <laughs> he, he don't want anything I own. There's nothing to him. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the wealth in every mind. What does he want with the little stuff you got and that I got? So what am I going to give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I'd take what I had, I'd bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. What did the wise men do? They gave the best they had, which was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave those things. But what I can, I give him. Give my heart. Give my heart. So what are you going to give Jesus for Christmas? You don't want nothing you got, except for one thing. He wants your heart. He wants all your heart. And we always change the words when we sing that. Give him all my heart. Give him all my heart. (laughs) 
give him all my heart. That's what he wants from you. You want to give him a gift, and that's what he wants. That's what he prefer from you for Christmas, all your heart. Everything, your feelings and your emotions and your thoughts and your choices all say they're yours. I'll do your will. I'll listen to your voice. I will do everything in my power to give you what you really want for Christmas. I'll give you all my heart. It's a beautiful, beautifully written song. It's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. Poetically written and carefully thought out to express the condensation of a majestic God who came down here so close that you could kiss him. Which angels looked down and they said, wow, we never got to do that. We never got to do that. Well, we'll do more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.